Hey, everybody, it's that time of year where we encourage you to become an Incomparable member and support your favorite podcast. Go to theincomparable.com slash members to learn more. You get a lot of bonus stuff when you sign up as a member, including a bunch of exclusive content that we're dropping this month in our membership feed. Check it out, theincomparable.com slash members. The Incomparable, number 343, March 2017. Welcome back, everybody, to The Incomparable. I am your host, Jason Snell. We are here to talk about a movie. It's a classic movie of a sort, a cult movie of a sort. Not from that long ago. Oh, God, it's so long ago now. 1991. (laughs) I was in college then. And Walt Disney Pictures released The Rocketeer, based on the comic books by Dave Stevens, starring... Uh, well, I think of it as starring Billy Campbell and Jennifer Connelly, although uh, Wikipedia would say starring Billy Campbell and Alan Arkin and also Jennifer Connelly is in it, which honestly, having seen it now, yeah, that's pretty much it. She's in it some. Uh, anyway, <laughs> joining me to talk about this movie, <laughs> some people who really love it. I have only seen it two or three times. I think it's fun, but I know there's some people who love, love, love this movie. And guess what? I asked them to be on this podcast to talk about it. Dan Morin is one of those people. Hi, Dan. Hello, Jason. Better the version with Billy Campbell and Jennifer for Connolly than the version with Billy Connolly. Actually, no, that would be amazing. Huh. Interesting. He could have the Alan Arkin part. Uh, also, a, a huge Rocketeer fan, and I, I wouldn't do this episode without him uh, returning to the show for a second time. It's Casey Liss. Hi, Casey. Hello. I am excited to be here. Excellent. Excellent. I, I hope so. We're going to talk about the Rocketeer for Pete's sake. Uh, David J. Laurel, also here with us. Hello, David. Welcome back. To infinity and beyond. Well, that's not quite You're right. Out. You're fired. <laughs> Damn. Off the show now. <laughs> the Rocketeer is not falling with style. And Joe Rosensteel is also here. Hi, Joe. The Rock of Who? (laughs) (laughs) That's one of my favorite lines. Well done. Well done. I use that way more than I should, given that there are only about a half dozen people who actually get it. And they're all almost (laughs) all most of them are right here. Anybody have any opening statements? Uh... I believe I saw something in the Slack right before I hopped on the the conversation that maybe we should bring up uh, some of the... the, How should I put this? Uh, The fact that this is kind of a a movie for uh, white guys. um, Yep. For white guys. (laughs) (laughs) And... uh, it, it's 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 very obvious from the get-go uh there's there's not a whole lot of uh dynamism in terms of uh, uh the cast of characters that you see um f- for different backgrounds in their lives uh mm-hmm. or genders or anything of that nature uh and uh, you could make the case i suppose that it is of the era that it's supposed to be depicting but um i don't think that was technically okay for 1991 or uh it, something that would really fly if you were to go ahead and do this th- th- these days uh and certainly you could look at joe johnson's other film um captain america the first avenger yeah depending on i guess where you were in the the world but um that uh had a little more going on than than this one does um and uh i th- i i just i kind of feel guilty <laughs> about that or something because i really do like this film um but uh, i can i can definitely understand why uh it would not be appealing to many other people well the comment i made in the slack uh was was that although i was disappointed that none of our women panelists signed up for this at the same time i thought it would be kind of fitting in the sense that this is not a movie where women really participate <laughs> jennifer Connolly is in it and she her character her character is not bad in the sense that like she's not really portrayed as a as a as a 
in ways that she could have been, I suppose, as a dummy, as a, a as a laughing stock kind of thing. I think she she she's really good at hitting people over the head with with glass <laughs> objects. She does that t- twice. <laughs> that, that's kind of like your default damsel move, yeah. right? Like it, in some it ways, is. And, oh, she's totally a damsel. The movie that I end up comparing this to, and maybe just because I rewatched it a few weeks ago, but in fact, very very similar to it, is The Princess Bride, which is also a movie in which the woman is pretty much a person who is kidnapped or sought after. She has a couple of good points where she like you know hits someone over the head or hits a creature with a log and she is pretty much the only woman in the entire movie with any like substantive role and yeah i again i don't think this is necessarily excusable by saying that it's of the era i i think probably the the best you can say is this was not something that people like that the people making this movie were thinking about at that time and right or wrong that's the way it is and to add to that i will say that after after watching this the other night i went and read the entire dave stevens rocketeer run because it's not very long it's Uh, only eight issues and Holy crap, is Jennifer Connelly's version of this character so much better than the version <laughs> of her in the comic book? In which basically Dave Stevens, so Dave Stevens was kind of apparently obsessed with Betty Page, the pinup model. And so the character who is named Betty in the comic books is drawn as essentially Betty Page, including many, many, many scenes of her essentially posing in let's say less than well cheesecake uh, cheesecake yeah. poses right uh, but yeah. but in cases with like no actual clothes on uh, in any sure. of these cases like strategically placed and she is incredibly sort of petty cliff is not much better he is kind of a booze hound and is super jealous and all this like for a com- for a comic that's supposed to be sort of a lighthearted pulp none of the characters seem very uh sympathetic hmm. um so yeah i think the movie actually does a service to the comic book in making this much more of a uh, certainly family-friendly <laughs> movie and certainly more palatable and sympathetic as far as the characters go. So, yeah, I will say that the Jennifer Connelly role certainly underwritten, um, but could have been way worse. But, yeah, oh, this yeah. is not necessarily a movie that, that any current movie should aspire to be. And, and Joe, I, I have to say kudos to you for blink not blinking an eye when you said that it wouldn't fly today uh, <laughs> when i was uh, watching it this afternoon as 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 her name comes up i went and jennifer connelly is also present uh. <laughs> i know the, the writers were so happy that they 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 went to the trouble of not making her the screaming helpless damsel yeah they didn't really do that much but you know, yes, she is. She is. She, she could be a lot worse. But she's 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 hardly in, integral to the story as anything except the thing that the two men fight over. Yeah. Well, and she's the coincidental link that helps the actor find the rock. Right. 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 Yeah. She is the coincidence. Look, I, I love Jennifer Connelly. She is. She's. She's my age. She went. Apparently, went to college with Glenn. Oh, Glenning by remote <laughs> is the worst kind of Glenning. <laughs> <laughs> and, and you know, I, she went on to win an Oscar, and she's been in a lot of stuff. And I think she's very good. And here, she does all she can with what she's given, and she does the way they they make her up to look like a classic. Uh, sort of uh classic movie star starlet she looks beautiful but the story again it, it's just one of those things i didn't really think about before but when we were talking about it in slack it, it's definitely the case that like this is a this is a, a boy's story basically a boy's life boy's ad- great adventure story in fact i will say and this is a, a tie into our the fact that it's our member uh, period here um the uh, raiders of the lost ark you know 
has the same issue, right? We watched Raiders of the Lost Ark for a special member episode, and, you know, Karen Allen is the only woman in that, and she hits a guy over her head with a log at one point, and <laughs> she's a very spunky, capable character, but again, it's the one woman who is the hero's love interest who doesn't have a lot to do, and, and Jennifer Connelly is stuck in that same, in that same spot here. And both movies are, are, you know, they're specifically aping a certain style and period yeah. and, and everything. And, you know, I think Raiders, at least she's a lot sharper. She's able to hold her own against the characters. Uh, whereas in this, she, the character is a little bit more girly uh, in a pejorative yeah. sense. And I, I think they went too far thinking, well, how would we do this if it were 1938? Whereas in Raiders, it's like, you know, okay this is what we're going to do. Whereas here they're like, well, all the Germans would be white guys. And well, all the people in Hollywood films would be white guys. And you know, it, it it's just, it's like, I don't think that was even on their radar. Well, Ra- I mean, Raiders is obviously a huge inspiration point for this movie as well. I yes. very clearly, I mean this, the scene later on with uh, Dalton giving Jennifer Connelly, the dress is Belloc yep. and Marion. Oh yeah. It's the same exact oh, scene. Basically. God, good call. Yep. Uh, yeah. and there's a number of things like that where I'm like better dress than the rocketeer better. Doesn't have that. Doesn't have the flower on the butt, but like same thing where it's used as like a diversion, right? Like it's a trick, right? Like it, there's a lot of beats in here that are basically cribbed from that. And they, they, you know, as far as the production goes, it seems to be intentional. Um, because a lot of what I, from what I gather, they were pointing to Raiders as a successful franchise that would let them set this in the thirties rather than trying to modernize it as some of the earlier arguments were that it should be, which would have been really, really bad. Apparently they wanted like a NASA helmet for him. It was like, no, no, no that's <laughs> kind of not the point. You know, you guys, um, you must have seen a different movie than I did because uh, when this movie came out, I was 10 years old and I had some very complicated thoughts about Jennifer Connelly <laughs> as a 10 year old. <laughs> Oh, I had very complicated thoughts about her as a 20-year-old. I was 20, and my thoughts okay. about her were not complicated at all, Casey. <laughs> and I say, that, I say that jokingly, but but all snark aside, I mean, she was 20, and she wasn't even 21 when this, when this movie was released. Yep. So she filmed this when she yeah. was like 19 or 20 years old. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I was barely alive at 20 years old as far as i'm concerned i could i could barely scrape two words together and here it was i mean i i, I don't think this is an oscar-winning performance because of all the things you guys had mentioned that it, it wasn't that much of a performance but every scene she was in i thought she did a phenomenal job yeah. and and oh, yeah. i thought i thought she handled it really really well and i thought that she was more as you said than just a damsel in distress and and it's funny because i, I would agree that she was not a, a critical role, maybe that's not the best word for it, but she was not, she was not a, a, a frequent, um, f- f- scene. You know, she, you wouldn't see her that much. But nevertheless, I don't reflect on this movie and think that she was an afterthought. I reflect on it and think that this is, uh, you know, Billy Connolly or whatever his name is. And, uh, <laughs> Billy Campbell. See, you got in my it's head. You got in my darn head. Billy Campbell. Thank you. Billy Campbell, Jennifer Connolly. Well, they did date for a while, so it was it almost went that way. Uh, I agree. Actually, I would say exactly what you said, Casey, which is in my mind, Jennifer Connolly is a major part of this movie. And then yeah. I watch it and I'm always disappointed that she's not as big a part of it as I remember her being. And I think that's just because she does a good job she's very likable she's very beautiful and but then the movie like doesn't you know it doesn't carry it through as much as my memory does like i i in the great rewrite in my mind i say give Connolly twice as many scenes as she's got mm-hmm. in the script right but <laughs> th- that's not actually how the movie is laid out 
unfortunately. Well, and, you know, watching it as a writer and watching it in terms of, you know, how do I pull this apart? How do I use the component parts and other things? And, you know, I certainly have done that with this. And, you know, it's like, I know that it went through many, many rewrites and many, many revisions and many, many, you know, let's, let's do this outline. Let's do that outline. Well, they liked this from the old outline and they, you know, they just, it, it's like this weird Frankenstein monster of scripts and outlines. And it almost feels, and I'm saying this as someone who loves the movie, it does still feel like it needed one more polish or two because it's sort of like, it's a very linear, here's where we go from here and this leads to this. And, oh, what if she's an actress and she connects this? And, oh, what if she's at the club when they're doing the thing? And it's well, it's a very see See, I disagree. I think, it's very, I think it's very, yeah, it is very schematic, but I think it's also very tightly plotted in that way, in that there there is nothing extraneous about it. Exactly. But it could, it could use a little extraneous. It could use a little breathing, I, I think. It's a Walt Disney picture from 1991. <laughs> it has the amount of extraneous it needs billy campbell i wanted to mention now it, billy campbell is actually um a lot older than jennifer Connolly. um and 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 yet here's the thing billy campbell is uh he's boyish <laughs> he just is oh, yeah. he's, a, he's a boyish fellow and so i i don't have a problem with that part at all the fact that they, they don't feel like they're you know, more than a decade apart in age, because the reason that Billy Campbell works in this part as Cliff, who discovers the rocket pack and starts and puts on and gets a helmet and starts to fly around and thinks it's fun, is that he is so boyish. And it is, like I said, it's the, in an adventure story like this, you kind of want to have that golly, golly gee whiz. You're kind of hearkening back to that era. And that's, that's what Billy Campbell has in spades here, right? Like this is what this part requires. And, and, and it's what he gives the part. After after this movie, and partly because of Billy Campbell's performance, I did go back to the, you know, I'd always seen the comic, but I'd never picked it up. And I went back and read it at the time and, and was very disappointed. And now after Stevens passed away and there have been more and more uh, adaptations of The Rocketeer and news stories and everything, they tend to follow the movie style yeah. a little yep. better, which I like. They, they should, too, because and they should. having read it, it is not. It is not it, it, some of their stuff patterned directly after the comic book. Um, like the scene with uh, Malcolm being rescued is almost taken not exactly well, frame by it's frame, but it's beat by beat certainly. But yeah. it just goes totally off the rails. And also, Stevens was kind of I don't want to say obsessed, but like he was really big in the pulp stuff. So there are there are appearances by notable pulp characters who are very specifically not named, so as to prevent yes. any sort of copyright infringement. The entire second arc of the comic books involves the shadow. But never named, <laughs> just basically alluded to being the shadow. But like, not in just like one or two scenes. He's in a bunch of it. The entire first arc uh, has a bunch of stuff with Doc Savage, like homage, right? Yes. But like, this is, <laughs> you know, anyways. So I think that the movie does a nice job of bringing this around to something that, in fact, it's almost as though the movie is a better sort of a- adaptation of the platonic ideal of this story, uh-huh. if anything. The Incomparable is brought to you this week by Casper an obsessively engineered mattress at a shockingly fair price. Casper is made with supportive memory foams. They are creating an award-winning sleep surface that has just the right sink and just the right bounce. I've had a Casper mattress for more than a year now. I sleep on it every night, and it's great. My old mattress was not great. We laid down in a mattress showroom for a little bit, thought we got the right mattress. It was really not 
very good. And I was so happy that we got rid of it and replaced it with a Casper, which even after a year feels fantastic. Now, you don't need to go to a showroom and lay down for one night and hope that the mattress that you get will suit you for the long haul. With Casper, you can try it for 100 nights, more than three months, risk-free in your own home. And if you don't love it, they will take it away and give you your money back. Casper understands how important it is that you sleep on it, literally sleep on it before you commit, especially considering you you spend, like all of us, about a third of your life on your bed asleep and maybe more awake if you're like working on the bed or reading or whatever. I mean, boy, I've written so many things on sitting on the bed with a laptop. It's amazing. So uh, it's important that you're comfortable when you're doing that. Casper offers free shipping and returns to the U.S. and Canada. There are over 20,000 reviews with an average of 4.8 stars. It is quickly becoming the internet's favorite mattress. You can get $50 toward any purchase of a Casper mattress by visiting www.casper.com slash Snell and using offer code Snell at checkout. Terms and conditions apply. Thank you, Casper, for sponsoring The Incomparable. Another thing that we noticed while we were watching this, that um, Lauren and I were watching this last night, and uh, at one point, one of us made the comment, oh, this movie has every character actor in it. Yes. <laughs> yes. It, is, it yep. is a remarkable assortment of character actors. Like, you could just play, hey, it's that guy, the whole movie. Like, just to list some of them. Um, and we'll leave, like, Alan Arkin, but he's kind of a major a major uh, character. And, of course, Timothy Dalton is the villain. But Paul Sorvino is in it. Terry O'Quinn is in it. Ed oh, Lauder. Uh, John Polito. John Polito. William Sanderson. William Sanderson from Deadwood. My notes here are literally, you know, Every few lines, it's just a name with an exclamation point. Margo my, Martindale. Margo, yeah, Margo Martindale. Martindale. She's great. My my favorite my favorite random call out is uh, uh, Max Grodenchik and the very first scene as the gangster, yeah. the red haired gangster, who of course went on to play Rom, Rom on Deep Space Nine. Deep Space Nine. <laughs> <laughs> I kept looking at that guy. I was like, why do I know him? Mm-hmm. And then I had to look it up afterwards. Like, yes, of course. <laughs> and and how many of these character actors wind up folded in half? That's kind of yeah. awesome. <laughs> well, there's also uh, and Tiny Ron Taylor who folds yes. yeah. him in who half. Folds him in half. Yeah, he plays Meridu, who's uh, the Grand Negus's uh, valet, oh, right. I guess. Right. Yeah. yeah. So uh, there, there's another connection there. Wow, uh, with the that's awesome. But there, yeah, yeah, like basically everybody's been in Star Trek in this one. I mean, Paul Sorvino, <laughs> uh, Terry O'Quinn, um, uh, like uh, Clint Howard, of course. Uh, of so, course. Yeah. Terry O'Quinn is Howard Hughes in this, and it's a fun it's a fun part oh, for great. for Terry O'Quinn. Terry O'Quinn's got more hair than we usually see Terry O'Quinn with, which is kind of interesting. <laughs> it's a good Howard Hughes role too. It's not mm-hmm. the it's it's the Howard Hughes <laughs> as sort the of the um, no exactly <laughs> oh, thank exactly. God. But it, it's cla- oh. it's the Howard Hughes version. I wrote in my notes that he's kind of like Nikola Tesla in this regard, right? He's the mythological sort of genius inventor, and we only get him in that sort of role of right. the um, not exactly a muse, but like you know kind of the uh he's the wise guide or whatever. and kind right, of he's impish. the wise older he's the jedi master yeah so the tesla from the prestige like that right sort of thing. exactly david yeah. david bowie is tesla yeah. <laughs> yeah he's he's got that he's got the wisdom and he he he's like uh advising 
uh, Cliff and like admires him from the from the the aviation perspective, like that he's a pilot and all of that, and he like appreciates that. And at the end, he's his benefactor and brings in the plane. And it's a yeah, it's a fun part. And then he's he's also at, in opposition when we see him, he's in opposition to the the feds, right? Because the feds want to federalize the jetpack, and he basically just throws the the plans on the fire because he doesn't he doesn't want to get into that game. With one of my favorite lines from this entire movie, tell him the dream is over. Tell him Howard Hughes said so. <laughs> Tell him he talks in the third person. <laughs> My favorite is that uh, right before, or right before, right after that, the Fed is like, "Will you reconsider?" And as we're looking at the plans being burnt on a fire, you know, it's not like he can go to Backblaze and get another copy of these things. Like this is it, guys. Literal. But yes, place. yes. I, yeah, I, I will reconsider by reaching my hand into a fire to pull out mm. my my plans. Oh yeah, totally. Good call, guys. <laughs> Sorry, that was rash. Howard Hughes would totally do it. Uh, Paul Servino, I wanted to mention because this is one of my favorite things in this movie every time. One of the great things. So Paul, Paul Servino, yes. shocker. I know where you're he's going. He's a gangster. Yeah, I know. No way. I, I know. It's hard what? to believe that Paul Servino might be playing a gangster. I bet I know the scene you're going to, but go. You know what I'm going to say, right? Which is that at the end of this movie, one of the one of the big turns that happens is that the gangsters have been working for Timothy Dalton and they get uh, they get Cliff cornered and take away the jetpack and it's like, oh no, what's going to happen with Cliff? And they they reveal that Timothy Dalton is actually a Nazi and he's working with all the all the other Nazis to steal the jetpack because they want to take over the world. At which point, the gangsters say, well, but we're American gangsters. We don't like Nazis. And they turn on the Nazis. It's such a, a, it is both like wonderful and absurd all together which is like <laughs> yes these are bad guys but they're our bad guys they're not the your bad guys sh- i may be crooked the- but oh, i'm american i'm 100 percent american the fantastic shot where he and the fed are next to each other shooting and then they sort of pause and yep. look at each oh other and God, then go back that. to shooting the nazis and you're like <laughs> All right, all right. That's what kind of movie this is. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's ridiculous. And yet it's also like, it also is completely in the logic of it. Right. Which is that they're, yeah. they're, they're, they've been hired to do a job and they're mobsters and that's fine. But then when they realize they're working for the Nazis, they're like, no, no, that's not, it's almost like a public service announcement at that point. Whereas like, I draw the line at working for the Nazis. And well, that's, they, that's a good place to draw the line, guys. I may not make an honest buck, but I'm a hundred percent American. American guys. That's yep. amazing. Oh God, so good. So good. good. Some good Paul. Servino in here for sure. Um, well, let's okay. Let's talk about Timothy Dalton. He is Neville Sinclair. He is a film actor, very serious. He has an English accent. I mean, he's he's Errol Flynn. until the end of the movie. He has an English movie until the an English accent until the last until scene he in just the movie. starts speaking with a German <laughs> accent because he's accent. revealed as German. Love which it. is bizarre. Oh, amazing. And not, does amazing. Not make a lot of sense. It right? was just sense. acting. <laughs> well, if he's got a flawless Eng- English accent, why would he then go back to his English with a German accent once he's uncovered? Just to spite them, it doesn't really make. He's any- just showing off. Dalton. He's, Dalton you know. is mixed. Oh, no, it's because he can relax now because oh, his true colors have Finally, shown through. I can let down. That's not how relaxing works. I always relax with a German accent. I don't know about you. <laughs> I, I like Dalton as a villain. He he has the right degree of uh, suavity and menace. Um, I yes. years later after this, he would play a a, a villain in uh, Chuck is uh, one of the scenes oh, yeah. one of the seasons of Chuck, in which he's actually great um, because he goes from being this sort of very uh, he's supposed to be this sort of friendly ish figure, and it's revealed at some point that he's a villain, but he still kind of like thinks he he's th- does one of those great jobs of thinking he's a good guy. Um, and he's just he's I think he's great in this role. This is during his James Bond tenure, I believe, or he was yes, then current. Is. Um, 
And, you know, it's obviously a very different side of it's kind of like you have an inverse evil James Bond, right? Like he's still very charming and very suave, but he's kind of slimy and, and you can make the argument is that James he Bond charming is and is he suave? Huh. Like when, when he brings when he kidnaps Jenny and brings her back to his like, I don't know, like okay, that, that we moved into nest. creepy for sure. Uh, that, but that's the thing. Like it, it strikes me very different as a 35 year old than it did oh, as sure. a 10 year old yeah. that here he is. He brings like the kidnapping, even as a 10 year old, I, I realized that was probably not cool. But he brings her back to his house, and and he has like this array of women's clothing in like all oh sizes and shapes, That's ready and waiting. List. Like I was going to ask about that. He has a that? closet full of women's clothes. That, that I, I, my note says so he has a large selection gross. of women's clothes. I am not going to assume anything about his life choices. What he wants to dress as is. <laughs> I, Lauren just quoted Mr. Robot at me. She said, "Those, those are my sisters." Uh, I was like, yeah, mm-hmm. sure. I thought uh, to say that, I, sure. but he's got the creepy. He says, "Welcome to my home." Not a good lead-in when you've kidnapped someone. Then he tries to play the victim card, and then he tries to basically use movie lines, which I actually kind of love. This guy is—he mm. is. He maybe he's suave, but it's all the act, right? It's all the like, I only know how to play this part. So I'm going to I don't even have any original lines. I'm just going to spew off lines I've used in movies because that works in movies. Jenny doesn't want anything to do with it, too, which is what I love is that, you know, it's not the like standard fair. Oh, oh, Neville. You know, she she calls him out on it immediately, which which I thought was fantastic. So one of the things I really love about that scene, it may be my favorite scene in the movie. There's so much going on. it. First off, Timothy Dalton has post chloroform moves which is just absurd right he's like once i bring my dates home after having chloroformed them then i try to sweet talk them which is totally insane and then what's nice about what uh, what jenny does is i just realized that jennifer Connolly is playing jenny jenny is jenny we were all born in 1970. We're all called Jason and Jenny. Um, is she is she she makes the line about like you're all you're just quoting lines from movies, which is great. But she also is acting as as the you know the girl in a the movie interest, would yeah. act in that scenario. And and then she you Fake know swooning. And then she comments like, right, I finally I, I finally, finally played a scene, a scene with Neville Sinclair. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, and that, that I love that the whole thing. Is Both just of great. those scenes are great because first you have Timothy Dalton after she agrees to try on the dress and she disappears in the bathroom. He like winks at himself and then checks his <laughs> teeth in the mirror, which is just such a perfect encapsulation of that character and it how is. fake he is. And in the right, my favorite punctuation after she delivers the line, I finally played a scene with Neville Sinclair. She zips her tr- her dress back up, but it's. <laughs> Yep. It's clearly over mixed because it's super loud, but it is a great <laughs> punctuating zip. Yep. <laughs> like yep. that is done. We're all, we're finished with that part. We're moving on. And, and the whole reason that she needed him in there ostensibly, which obviously was an act, but was to to help her, you know, get the dress off and unzip the dress. And and here it is. She clearly could have handled it all on all her own. All by herself. I, and I also loved uh, earlier on when when he realizes that Jenny is his tie to Cliff, who is who who has the rocket. When he when he's still in the um, um, in the like swashbuckling acting mode and he has that just preposterous wig on and he goes mm-hmm. goes to walk up to Jenny and he like fluffs Checks this like hair. mane yeah. of just ridiculous hair but he has to fluff it before he walks up to her like it really makes a difference the man oh, it's so good 
I mean, keep in mind that this is a guy who concealed his secret bookcase entrance behind the conquests of Casanova. <laughs> oh, man. Another thing I didn't really appreciate until very recently. Yeah, I, yeah, I think so that good. is a, uh, yeah, that <laughs> definitely takes some time. I just want to say one thing about the set design. Mm. I love his lair. I love the South Seas Club. I love the Bulldog Cafe. All of this looks so good. This looks like what I imagined of these kind of adventures when I was a kid. I just, I love all the sets. Yeah, you know, I commented to my wife when we were watching this uh, the other day that uh, Cliff's leather jacket, which, if you look at it oh, and yeah. really think about it, is a it truly hideous and terrible yeah. jacket. <laughs> but God, does does Bill Campbell pull it off so well? And I he really, really does. want one. I and if you look at it, like it looks as though there's a series of buttons uh, up the sides and then across the top. How does he get the rocket pack on and or off in any sort of timely fashion with all of these buttons in the way? Like that must have taken a, an hour. That occurred to me too in the another scene that I think is pulled from Raiders, which is when he goes back in the South Sea Club. He's running away. He runs back into the laundry room where he stashed the rocket pack and where he left it in a laundry bag. And now there's a bunch of laundry bags, which is basically <laughs> the basket scene from yeah. Raiders, yeah. where he's like diving in and trying to find the right one. But I agree with Casey. Like I thought to myself, there are a couple scenes where he disappears and then comes back, and he's like, we've seen that he st- puts it on, and then he like buttons the thing over it. And at one point, when the Germans take it from him, they unbutton the like epaulette straps on his shoulders too. I'm like, God, this thing must take forever to get on <laughs> and off. It's like a suit of armor. <laughs> well, you don't want it to fly off. That would be like, awkward. Yeah. You have to strap it on securely. So I have a question. This is a little bit out of band, but I can't help but ask when, when Neville Sinclair accidentally stabs the other actor in, oh, yes. in the swashbuckling scene. We were talking earlier about how this film has like no superfluous bits whatsoever. And by and large, I agree with that. But what was the purpose of the stabbing of the uh, of the other leading actor? <laughs> Did that serve any purpose at all? It is to show how magnanimous he is. He's taking charge. He makes sure everything is set up. Get mm, the ambulance. Okay. Take him here to my personal doctor. Yeah, yeah. You okay, know, fair. I'm. he's like, I'm big man on campus. But, there, but there's something about about it that's slightly sinister as i wrote in my notes because the, yes. the line he guy the guy says is did you think i was stealing the scene and <laughs> you can't quite tell if he's yeah. being like he doesn't seem like he's joking like there's an edge to it that makes it sound like oh i know you stabbed me and i know you know you stabbed mm. me like it was done on purpose <laughs> you're you're a dick <laughs> like basically <laughs> it could be that knowing that the zeppelin is coming and knowing that he's after the rocket pack, if he stabs his fellow leading actor, then there's time off from shooting the movie. Ah, there's nothing but, he has to get to step away from. Well, and some of it is also, as you point out, playing a role, right? Because not a, like two minutes after that, we have the scene where he's trying to chase Cliff down, you know, trying to find him because he's overheard the conversation about the rocket pack. And he like starts shoving all of the crew people aside <laughs> as he's running, literally right. like bodily shoving people. It's like he's clearly not a nice guy. Like <laughs> that's an act. Yeah. Uh, what I love about that is it wouldn't be that hard to get around any of these people, but he's so dead set. <laughs> he's like aiming them them all up. <laughs> it's great. Do you think the extras of that scene that had to do like the overly emphasized infomercial style, like aggressive fall? Do you think after that was over, they said to their, you know, spouses or whatever i acted in a scene with timothy dalton <laughs> i finally yep. played a yep. scene with timothy finally. dalton <laughs> yep. timothy dalton. zip <sighs> zip, <laughs> zip. <laughs> that that scene actually also the scene on the hollywood set i feel like has some of the better lines in the, or like more memorable lines i i enjoy the rapport between the director or producer i don't know what his role is and the 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 actress who can't act 
Mm. Um, the acting is acting like you're not acting. Right. Now do that. Yeah. I, I enjoy that. Uh, I enjoy some of the, um, the, the her terrible delivery. Um, the ladies in waiting, we're, we're waiting. waiting. Like it's, it's, <laughs> so it's corny, bad. but it's, it's, it's super corny. But for whatever reason, it's a nice comic relief scene. And of course, the whole thing is cribbed. We mentioned the Errol Flynn connection before, but like this whole thing is clearly cribbed from Robin Hood. Oh, um, yeah. And, it's, and Flynn it's pitch version, perfect. Right? I mean, right, it it's looks the, so good. It, it looks, in fact, for years, I thought it was supposed to be that movie because I'd only like seen the clips. Well, and I, I love, I, I want to know more about The Laughing Bandit. I'm like, yeah, I want to see that movie. Where is that movie? It's Sir Reginald. Sorry. Oh, now you know. It's spoiler. Let me take a break to tell you that this is the time of year when we remind you about how you can support this podcast. We only do it once a year. Here it is. You can become a member of The Incomparable. Sign up for a monthly pledge or an annual pledge if you only want your credit card charged once and support this podcast directly. Go to theincomparable.com slash members and sign up. You'll be asked to pick the shows on the network that you'd like to support. If you just check the box for the main show, The Incomparable, you're entire contribution will come here but if you listen to some of our other podcasts check those boxes too and your money will be spread out across all of them now as a thank you for supporting us members receive extras including exclusive bonus audio a live bootleg feed of the incomparable and a members only slack group which is pretty fun i have to say since this is pledge season this month many of the shows on the network will be posting bonus episodes just for members there's so many that we've already done there's a two-hour commentary track we did for raiders of the lost ark featuring john syracuse dan morin david laura and monty Ashley, along with me. We did a 20-minute long rough draft edition of a forthcoming radio theater episode. Scott McNulty and Joe Rosensteel broke down an animated episode from Star Trek on Random Trek. There's a special Unjustly Maligned, a special three-plus hour Total Party Kill bonus session, sophomore lit, game show, defocused, lazy Doctor Who game show, the villain edit is going to talk about a 70s reality show, Tim Goodman is programming his own streaming service on the TV talk machine, and Phil and Lisa will be ruining a movie so so much is available for members please if you are interested support the incomparable five ten or twenty dollar per month levels there are annual equivalents available and if you're already a member you can go to that same page and increase to a higher level and get some extra goodies it's the incomparable.com slash members thanks for listening and now i will be quiet about this for another year somebody mentioned uh, the set design was that you david set design earlier yeah I like the set design. Some of the sets feel almost amusement park-like to me, like more like a ride Walt at an Disney amusement picture. park. They're like uh, maybe a little too setty for me. I mean, they look they they're very they're they're stylized and they're Art Deco and they're period and it's all it's all fine. But but some of them work better than others. I do enjoy the yes. South Seas Club. Um, and uh, the scene there where Billy Campbell is the world's worst waiter is especially <laughs> enjoyable. I feel like he improved some of that. Like the scene where he like starts just messing with the flowers. Oh, it's so bad. There. It's so bad. He's just it's, fluffing the flowers. Yeah, oh, I, I really love that. What are you? Yeah, what are you doing? <laughs> I, I don't know. I'm not a waiter. And the soup. The, just he brings soup, and it's like I'll give you a note, and then I'll put. And he slops the soup everywhere, and then he's told to go away, and then he decides to rearrange the flowers a little bit. I like it because it's so, it's oh. a bad plan, and yeah. he executes it badly. And <laughs> That's fine. Yes. That's not what he's supposed to be like. He doesn't know what he's doing. He is just coming up with this on the spot. 
And in that sense, it works perfectly. Like, you know, meet me by the big fish is not a good note to meet someone. <laughs> and then, like, when she walks by the plant, you like, does, it's almost like a cartoonish, like, whoop, into the plant. You know, like. It, it's funny to me, though, that, um, that it was in this scene that was the second gratuitous shot of Jennifer Connelly's chest in a Disney film, which I thought was a little bit ridiculous, um, which also probably contributed to my complicated feelings as a 10 year old. Mm. But, but mm. It, it seems a, an extremely tasteless and unnecessary yeah. bit. I agree. Like, it was kind of comical when, when the, what's it, WC Fields, WC whatever, Fields, says, you yeah. know, double A charmed, but really unnecessary in the grand scheme I, I of things. Definitely did not like, get that as a kid like watching this movie i didn't really understand entirely the innuendo of it but yeah i agree for a disney movie it seems unnecessarily crude like pixar i can't think of an example where pixar is crude but when you have that like adults only joke in a pixar film uh, you know of the modern era it, it's it's much more tastefully done whereas this was just straight up crude like you said well i mean I would compare this more probably to like Roger Rabbit than a Pixar Mm. film. Mm. Sure. That's fair. But yeah, I I think the soup scene is one of my favorite scenes. Uh, And uh, that was what we named uh, when we did our defocused episode. We called it a very classy soup because uh, it's just, (laughs) it seems like such a ridiculous thing that uh, he would wheel over soup that's from a fan. Like what, what fan sends you soup? (laughs) Send Neville Sinclair your finest soup. Sends you a tureen of tomato soup, of like Campbell's soup. There's, it's. Uh, Billy Campbell. Billy suit. Campbell. Billy Campbell. <laughs> oh my God! It's all making sense no, now. No. I'll meet you over by the fish. I do enjoy all the scenes at the uh, at the South Seas Club as well, uh, from the giant clam, um, <laughs> which he gets knocked over in the subsequent action scene, to the the music actually, which as a kid I think I, I kind of skipped over, but the the I really actually love some of the songs, and I think as we noted in a, one of our discussions earlier, that's the actress Melora Hardin, who's actually singing and uh is on stage there um and it's a really good uh delivery of those although even if you're timothy dalton i don't recommend trying the don't you hear the music (laughs) (laughs) that's not a good move that is not a good move never not work i i will admit i actually went out and got the soundtrack at the time just for just for her singing partly because her first appearance she's singing a cole porter song and that was the way to my heart in 1991 yeah, okay, let's song. let's talk. So, Melora Hardin, by the way, if, if people don't recognize that name, you may remember her as Jan from The Office. That's where I think a lot of people know her. Um, the the soundtrack, though, talking about that. So, this is this is James Horner midway between Star Trek II: The Wrath of Khan and Titanic. And <laughs> I have to say, uh, there are there is a, at least one cue in this movie that is lifted straight from Star Trek II. It is not even <laughs> close. And a lot of the cues are very much. In fact, I got and, and I wasn't offended by it. I was kind of excited of like, oh wow, there's extra music <laughs> that I could just put in my Star Trek II: The Wrath of Khan soundtrack playlist because it's basically the same. And then there's a couple moments that I, I'm like, oh, and I see where he's going with Titanic in ten years, right? Well, James Horner is kind of infamous among. Mm -hmm. score composers for lifting his own stuff he does it a (laughs) lot i have many of his soundtracks and a lot of them borrow heavily from each other that said this is one of my favorites of his scores and i've had it i've owned the cd of it for 20 odd years and it's because for no other reason than that second the second track on the cd which is basically covers the rescue of malcolm the rocketeer theme in and of itself 
is a fantastic piece of music. This entire yep. score, I think, is yeah. great. Mm-hmm. Um, but that in particular is a standout. Every time I watch it, I walk away humming the theme. It's, yep. it's such a good, solid hero theme in a way that a lot of yeah. i think you know i i put this up against you know we've talked about captain america briefly and joe johnson's role in that i'm hard pressed to pick out a theme in that movie which is kind of disappointing to me because i feel like it should have a very strong definitive one and, and this score blows that and pretty much every marvel movie score out of the water yep yeah and you know i'm not a terribly sophisticated film watcher which means i have no business being on this program right now but <laughs> what what struck me about this soundtrack was that it was so well it, it lends itself so well to the happy moments the sad moments the intense moments and it was the same general riff that was used and not all the entire way through the movie but in so many different scenes throughout the movie and 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 just like you guys said you know when when the when the opening scene happens when the Walt Disney Pictures presents whatever it is is shown on screen and then the then the the hangar doors part and the you know the words part with it and you hear that that opening riff like that that just immediately puts me in the mood for this movie and it's just it it's constant throughout the whole movie now sometimes it's intense sometimes it's not sometimes it's happy sometimes it's sad but it's still that same riff and oh god I think it's just so so well done it's called a motif yes indeed one of my favorite cues from this movie though is uh, another I feel like I, I can't tell entirely if it's 100% intentional, but the scene where at the very end, Sinclair takes the jetpack, flies off, and it starts to explode. There is a high-pitched string section that I am convinced is an homage to the end of Raiders, where the yep. where they open the arc. Well, it's the immolation. If you listen to the sound of the, like, they are very, very close. Yeah. Uh, and again, with this movie pulling so much from from Raiders in terms of thematic and like tonal stuff, I would not at all be surprised that that was done as sort of a tip of the hat. We've mentioned Raiders a few times, but uh, you guys know Joe Johnson worked on. Yeah, he was that. a second unit director. Uh, AD, uh, art art director, art director. Okay, yeah, and uh, yeah. I think effects at ILM, but I have to check. I believe so, yeah. Huh. It's funny you bring up the uh, ILM because I was just thinking to myself that even though these special effects are very clearly, like particularly the Rocketeer when he's flying, is clearly stop motion, I actually am not terribly bothered by it, even in 2017. Like, it's it's not flawless by any stretch, but it's not in the uncanny valley either that so many older films like this one geez unfortunately is now um so they it's it's in that okay area where yeah okay it's it's a little bit corny but it works i don't know if you guys felt the same way or if you were oh, deeply yeah. offended by the stop motion but i i'm okay with it for me i i come from theater right i'm used to suspending disbelief i, I you know i know i can't do a guy flying through the air over the audience in the theater but uh, for me, it's the story. It's the characters. If that works for me, I can overlook cheesy effects. I can overlook stop motion. And this isn't that bad for all that. I like you know? the the propulsion of the look. A, a rocket pack, a jet pack, is not a thing that would make any sense in physics. I'm sorry to tell everybody. It kind of doesn't make any sense. And so, really, what the you hell wanna, you say? What, what, and, <laughs> Hughes made it know, work. We talk about Joe Johnson directing Captain America, and when that was announced, I thought, oh, that's perfect because it is one of the things. And I love that movie. And one of the reasons I love it is because it is a period piece that embraces the kind of the tropes of the period and like like the Rocketeer. It is a perfect was a perfect choice but in this one the the just like a superhero power the rocket pack kind of all you really want to do is have it feel um 
exciting and and you just got to put aside the fact that that no that's not how a rocket pack would actually look because it would not it doesn't make any sense and so for me there's some logic to like he's zipping around he's flying around and he kind of steers and he gets where he needs to be and it's like it's enough for me to make sense of it and accept it and just kind of be like because because really the moment that i start questioning the um the 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 veracity of the portrayal of a freaking rocket pack it's like come on like, like it's a rocket pack it's it, there is no real with the rocket pack so i accept that it's just it looks great it's funny zipping around sure it's a, it's a jet pack well and they go to all the trouble of saying okay now now you have the helmet you, the, wherever you turn your head, that's where you steer, and you're going to yeah. go that way. And then it almost never works that way if you watch carefully, especially when he's flying around in the club. It's like, no, I'll no, just point that's out not how, that if you're flying no. like hundreds or thousands of feet up in the air and you have a problem, your metal helmet will not save you. <laughs> Okay, yes. will not make a damn bit of difference. As every reviewer at the time also pointed out, his feet would catch on fire immediately. <laughs> right, well, like, yeah, his back. His whole, well, I figure that's actually that's one of the things I really like about them testing. So one of the things that happens in this movie is they saw the statue, they saw yeah. down a, a statue and they attached the jetpack to the statue scene. of Charles Lindbergh. Yeah, and I like that because that's like the is this going to set me on fire test? And the answer is no, no. For some reason, the jets that are shooting out right at my butt are it's not a problem (laughs) problem. and they make the point of saying it's still cool howard hughes right howard hughes man what's hilarious about that is there's the scene if you pay attention to the scene where he's flying around inside the south seas club there's he's flying over the tables the tables are bursting into flame as he does that and you're like wait (laughs) if his feet aren't catching fire how the hell does that work and that's why his suit is like that it's the best shortly before that, that the scene where he's climbing up the laundry chute and he turns the engines on, and you're like, everybody in that scene would immediately burn to death. <laughs> I got to say though, to build on to build on what you were saying a moment ago, like how cool does this rocket pack look? Again, as it's a ten awesome. year old, oh my word, this was the coolest movie device I think I'd seen in my in in my whole ten years of living. It was amazing. The best vacuum cleaner I've ever seen. <laughs> well, I, I got to say, I mean, I love. Pointing out, and, and I've gotten to where I've trained the boys to figure this out when they're watching something, uh, the Chekhov's gun rule, that if something is, if they make a point of pointing out something, it will be important later. Right up in the beginning, chewing gum isn't going to keep your ass up in the air. And of course, chewing gum is like the thing for the rest of the movie. Well, That's I was getting, I had a bunch of notes about the gum because I think it's funny how it is one of the most consistent plot points in the movie. Yeah. Because in the very yeah. first scene, he sticks it on the back of the, the rudder of his mm-hmm. plane before he takes off. And it's clearly like a good luck thing, right? PV pulls it off. And what happens? He crashes the plane. Well, he says, <laughs> what do you want me to do? Crash? And then he sticks the, yeah, either exactly. right before, or right after he puts it on the rudder. And, and just like you said, PV takes it off. And then sure enough, he crashes. He crashes. But I love yeah. that it's you to plug the bullet hole in the rocket exactly. pack. Mm-hmm. And then it becomes the operative part at the end where he peels it off and that's how Neville Sinclair blows himself up. Mm-hmm. And then we get Howard Hughes tosses him a pack of gum at the end and like, don't fly without this. And you're like, it's if this were if this were an actual gum brand that were still sold, this would be product placement. <laughs> and, and I am so proud that my 15-year-old pointed out, does that make it Chekhov's gum? Oh. <laughs> yes! <laughs> That's my boy. Uh, Joe, I think we need your diagnosis on the jetpack. What do you think about the jetpack scenes? Uh, I think it's fine. And and the puppet 
that they used is is all right. Uh, they don't get too close to the puppet, yeah, um, which is something you shouldn't do with puppets. Uh, but uh, I think the the thing that holds it back is this is right on the cusp of when uh, movies were moving from uh, optical compositing to digital compositing. So there there are some uh, unpleasant mat lines uh, yeah, and integration yes. issues in a couple scenes. Uh, it's not so bad uh, as it is in uh, a few other titles that you could probably come up with in the, the late nineties. But uh, uh, I'm sorry, in the late eighties and early nineties. Uh, but it does it does hold it back from being really very good uh instead um so i i would say that that's a that's a negative there's also the model work for the the zeppelin the zeppelin um which is which is an unexpected fun moment um that that you get to see a zeppelin uh and it explodes in a way that doesn't make any sense um and uh <laughs> they're, they're like i think i think there's a series of hydrogen chambers from the front to the back and they're igniting one by one and exploding that's yes. I think actually a, a, a design for Ze- for zeppelins, um, you know, oh the humanity we have to say. It also, are there zeppelins? Yes. So why would we not love this movie? There are zeppelins in it. But my my fifteen yeah. year old went. This is like the ultimate incomparable adventure movie. <laughs> the zeppelin has a couple of my favorite bits on it, including my favorite. This is the finest pilot in all of Germany. We're in great hands. <laughs> and then, then Lothar hits him through the window. The guy just like ah falls out, and everybody stares at the wheels spinning yep. back and forth. Great comic timing moment. Um, Lothar is he's Lothar is a great. He's like the. Um, He's the, uh, oh God, what's the guy's name from Die Hard? Vlad, uh, Alexander Gudinov. Alexander Gudinov. He's the, like, I won't, the, the henchman who won't die, right? right. That's the, <laughs> probably the TV trope's name. Um, in that, like, you keep thinking he's been dispatched, and of course he keeps coming back. Yeah, but he's to, so outlandish. He's more like Jaws from a James, from the James right, Bond oh, that's movie, good, right? Yeah, that's a good comparison. Yep. Yeah. Especially with the, the heavy prosthetic mask thing mm, that yeah. doesn't move. It's, Where? Yeah. Where's the oh my God. There are a couple of scenes where that's an issue. Yeah, the, watching this a couple of days ago, it was striking how bad the the like dubs or whatever, or how much his face was not moving when he was ta- ostensibly talking. Yeah, and it was rough. But bringing up uh, uh, Lothar, one of my favorite pieces of trivia about this movie is that when uh, Cliff, I think after the Malcolm rescue, is is whizzing through like a cornfield or some sort of field. Uh, well, it's an orange grove, I think, and then a cornfield. I don't know, Jason, as a token Californian, yeah, you can sure. correct me. Uh, Jason, Jason and Joe <laughs> both, actually. But anyway, um, he's whizzing through all this, and, uh, and, and all of a sudden you see these two like farmers, and, and one of them, a shorter one, says, big gopher. Big gopher. Well, the other farmer is Lothar, apparently, which really? if you look closely yeah. yeah you can realize it but i never knew that until i went you know looking through imdb a few years ago and sure enough the taller of the two farmers i think he does not say big gopher he's the other one that's lothar or whatever mm-hmm. tiny that's, ron that's, or whatever the actor's awesome. name is my my favorite cameo is dave stevens creator of the rocketeer yep. appears in the propaganda nazi propaganda film he's the german test pilot who blows up <laughs> in the film <laughs> i didn't know that that's awesome yeah, yeah. Which that plot, that propaganda film was really well done. Kind it's of great, scarily well done. Actually. I love that film so much. Yeah. Just the animation, the not you know the typical the Nazis spreading out over Europe, first mm-hmm. Europe, then the world, and the animated flying soldier. Oh, it's really yeah, good. Some good. It's really some good. movie German, just like Raiders of the Lost Ark. Some very good high school German happening in it. Well, I, I mean, it's it's convenient that they had a pretty decent animation studio to work with. Just saying. Mm-hmm. No, it's it's nice. They, they knew some people. <laughs> Nazi rocket men are going to take over the world, and and you know, people died getting that out, getting that cartoon out of Germany. So one thing I think every time I watch this movie, 
I wish Joe Johnston had directed The Shadow. Huh. I still like The Shadow. I'm gonna I, st- I still like The Shadow. It's imperfect, but I like it. But I wish he had directed it. It would have been much better. Uh, I like the guy who yells at uh, Sinclair in German a lot on the Zeppelin, who in my notes is called the cheap tote imitator. from oh. <laughs> Except, of course, he just gets thrown out of the, the Zeppelin. Well, they needed to drop ballast. Why wouldn't you? Tote <laughs> yeah. bagged. There's the weight. I do enjoy the 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 whole premise that the 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 German Zeppelin is on a tour, but they're going to use it to get this jetpack, and the Zeppelin goes down in flames because that's what happened with Zeppelins, and and uh, does it over Griffith Observ- Griffith Observatory apparently, and it's just a, it's just of course there's a Zeppelin at the Crashes end into the Hollywood sign and a climactic thing, and yes they just it, it, that's how the land got knocked off the Hollywood land sign. Um, right. I mean, it's just, of course, of course, this is how the movie ends with a Zeppelin <laughs> flaming Zeppelin. Another Raiders pastiche is the fight between Cliff and Lothar on top of the Zeppelin, which is like the fight with the the big bruiser yeah. by the airplane in Raiders. Yeah, he's even got a wrench. Wrench. Yep. Down with <laughs> the wrench. Yeah. Um, I like the line, uh, you know, when he, when Cliff is fighting Neville in the, uh, Zeppelin, the, uh, where's your stunt man now, Sinclair? So good. I do my own stunts. <laughs> Well, one, one thing I really love in this is that, you know, it builds to this impossible thing, right? The rocket pack is gone. There are no parachutes. The, the Zeppelin's going down. And, you know, what are they going to do? And all of a sudden, Howard Hughes and Peavy show up just <laughs> because out of nowhere. <laughs> and, you know, so he get he actually gets to save the day, which is yeah, great. Lower the, lower the, uh, the, the ladder. Lower the ladder. That, um, that gyrocopter thing actually appears in the comic as well. Um, but it's not connected to Howard Hughes at all. But yeah, it's a it's a thing. So one thing that we haven't talked about that I want to mention too is the there there is a lot of stuff, especially early on between uh, Billy Campbell and Alan Arkin, who we haven't really talked about. Alan Arkin, it's a fun part. He's the uh, he's Peavy. He's 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 the mentor, and there's lots of. Uh, I, I, I love that kind of like uh, they've got a plan. They got this. They got the plane. They're working on. They, they're going to have a system. They're going to. This is how they're making their money. And they're like they they enjoy being like aircraft mechanics and racers and all of that. And that feels. I love the quaintness of that because that that's like from an era where airplanes were just an incredible novelty and that for a while that was a thing you could be is just like an airplane mechanic and racer whether that was ever really the case or not it feels very you know early 20th century story it it was i i've done research on this for another project and it's it is a fascinating thing to look into the the barnstorming and the early days of air, airline airplanes sort of a um, subculture here like yeah. a ham radio subculture or something except this is the the airplane mechanic and fly and races and wear dress up like a clown and fly around. and and that's that's <laughs> something that back when i you know the first few times i saw this i didn't have that basis it you know it felt authentic it felt like okay you know it's great and the more i've read and the more i've looked into this and it's like wow they really nailed that they that really works and and I love the chemistry between Campbell and Arkin. I love whatever it is Alan Arkin is doing with his accent because that's not his normal speaking voice. It's just delightful. No, he's got the he's got a slight accent to it, and I really yeah. I enjoy the folksiness of it. My, yes. my favorite line from him is Cliff: "When you borrow something and don't tell anybody, they call it stealing." <laughs> <laughs> Oh, he has the best lines in the whole he has, movie. He I does think. have the best lines in the movie. I think we're going to need a helmet. Like at, at the end when they're uh, 
when they're having the big romantic kiss and he's, you know, he's describing the plans and he looks yeah. and he goes, Hey, hey you over there. How about uh, we look at this? Well, and he's got his, uh, his, um, I, I really want to know his backstory because he talks about, you know, Cliff yeah. makes fun of him for not having had a date in mm-hmm. years. And he's like, ah, oh, this Flora Maxwell wasn't any point in dating anybody after her. And you're like, man, what is this guy's story? Like, what was he doing? Now, the, the funny thing about the, um, the, the aeronautics and all that is that the, the racer, the GB that, that, that they were, I guess, building or, or, you know, preparing for nationals, that was a real thing. It was a GB mm-hmm. Model Z. And apparently mm-hmm. it was impossibly hard to fly. And I don't re- recall the specifics, but I looked into this a, a couple of years ago when I went spelunking into Rocketeer trivia. And, and I guess it, it, it is a real thing. And it was very, very difficult to fly. And, and, and that's why it was such a big deal in the beginning that Cliff was taking this up and taking it for its first flight and whatnot, because it, it was, it was renowned apparently for killing its pilots so you know this is uh, not doing a good job because i don't think anyone really knew that trivia but it's it's kind of establishing um a cliff as you know like a crackpot pilot that's a better word for it a daredevil pilot yeah i i think it's the, one of the things that they don't normally talk about is that if you fly your plane over a car chase it's going to get shot you're going to Right. probably have trouble because I, I like that because then he comes back to the airfield and it's like oh that doesn't look good and there's smoke coming out of it it's like they don't even know he flew over a car chase and the bullets ri- riddled the <laughs> the bottom of this plane that's why it's in, in trouble and then of course you know it collapses on the on the as it's landing and the landing gear go flying and it skids in on its belly and is destroyed I love the shot where he has to punch the cockpit yeah, open yeah, yeah. because yep. he can't see you know yeah. And, yeah. and that is it's sort of th- uh, like again sort of a throwback to like I think of Lindbergh you know flying Spirit of St. Louis which did not have a windshield essentially and if you wanted to see where he was going he had to stick his head out the side <laughs> like you know the, the, all the things we take for granted in a modern day aircraft right are are not present here because this is a the 1930s and it is dangerous it is still kind of untested and even though we do have like we do have like that brief commercial airliner that he flies by on his first trip as the Rocketeer um, you know this is the unexplored frontier of this era and i really enjoy that part of it you know speaking of hardware and and tangentially related to set design one thing i noticed when i watched this a couple days ago is that like every car in this movie has suicide doors which is so cool (laughs) and such like a 30s era thing to have these doors that open you know kind of behind you instead of pivoting in front of you and i I don't know why that struck me so that when, when i watched it this week but it's just such it's something you never see and in fact the uh the the car that i forget the guy's name but the one who ended up playing a role in deep space nine not only does it have suicide doors but it has a rumble seat in the back rumble like seat, how freaking yeah. cool is that i uh, it feels like it. they were like what what can we do to convey that this is not like in the, in the old days as much as possible <laughs> i thought you were going to mention the hardware also from the the weaponry my two favorite weaponry notes one the mauser of course which is what the rocketeer uses at the end he never gets to fire it because it gets knocked out of his hand as soon as he gets on the zeppelin <laughs> Um, but that is, I believe, the weapon on which Han Solo's blaster is is based. Ah, essentially, yeah. that's the body mm-hmm. of it. Um, I also this was a special effect thing that caught me for the first time in this one at the very beginning when the feds are chasing the gangsters. There's a scene where they sort of run out of the hangar and you see the feds shooting. There's no muzzle flash on the gun, and it's clearly like a full lead-in sound later. <laughs> and it was just the most glaring thing to me in the first five minutes of the movie. Is like the feds are like shooting with these revolvers. I'm like, there is clearly nothing coming out of that gun it is a step above people going bang bang (laughs) what have we not covered that we should cover 
before oh we God, wrap it so up. So many things, Jason. I know. Well, this is your chance. This is your chance. I will say, I mentioned it earlier. The that ludicrous scene where uh, after the chloroform, he uh, he puts the, tries to put the moves on on Jennifer Connolly and says at one point. I'm as much a victim as you are. That one made me laugh out loud. That is such a such a great great line. And then I'm going to say the thing my wife said that was the best when he when he uh, opens up that closet to reveal all of the women's clothing in it. it she said, "Nothing makes a girl feel special like used lingerie." <laughs> <laughs> so well, true. later on, I, not a scene mm. after that where she realizes that he's a Nazi, and, and she says, "Neville Sinclair is a spy, saboteur, fascist, all of the above." Uh, Why would you identify yourself as all of those things? I yeah. feel like that is not good marketing. And how did he hear her through the door, which was closed while she's whispering? Yeah. He's, that, he's, he's got, got great good. ears, Joe. He's got great ears. I love that bookshelf, though. I'm a sucker for the hidden for hidden yep. oh, bookshelves, well, yeah. and it's a great one, into his evil Nazi lair that he keeps behind there. That just with the a best. radio with Germans on it. Yep. Especially in a Frank Lloyd Wright house. Yeah, exactly. Yep. <laughs> the ice snail at the South Seas. <laughs> I really enjoy that. It's dumb. But the Seymour Cliff's flying around, and somehow he ends up on the giant ice sculpture and rides it out. I, I mean, One of the things I love in the South Seas Club is the giant clam. Yes. Uh, which is almost certainly their only city can fly behind it and knock it shut. Yeah, pretty much. Which is it's beautiful. It still works. I, I also speaking of weird things done with the rocket pack when uh, he's he's trying to fly away from or, or escape him and PV from the like press and and Valentine's crew and the pickup won't start and he says put it neutral you steer I'll yeah. push oh my yeah. goodness I love that scene. I like that one that's right after my favorite uh, joke bit in the movie which is where he flies up next to the airliner salutes and turns <laughs> the rocket pack off. I just love it because again, it's dumb. He doesn't know what he's doing, <laughs> yep, and yeah. he's like, "There's just a moment of the oh shit." <laughs> uh, another great line from Terry O'Quinn: "Congratulations, gentlemen! Thanks to the diligence of the FBI, this particular vacuum cleaner will not fall into <laughs> yes. the wrong hands." <laughs> oh, it's so good! Oh, every line from Terry O'Quinn is golden. It is it really. Great. Is. It will fly. <laughs> Yeah, I also loved um, how thick the uh, FBI agents or CIA, whoever they were, put it on with the like 30s era lingo. Mm -hmm. Uh, Like Cliff takes a swipe at one of them when uh, when he says, oh, you should get a real job. And I'm probably going to get this slightly wrong. But he but the the one FBI agent says to the other, that fly boy uh, lands one on my kisser and you just let him waltz. It's like such (laughs) 30s era, like stereotypical lingo, right? Fly boy, kisser, let him waltz. If you think that's bad, do do read the comic book which is just wall to wall 30s jargon it is kind of terrible (laughs) yeah my goodness also my other favorite line which is also also an alan arkin we don't have a house clifford we have a gazebo (laughs) (laughs) shoot it full of holes it's just the delivery arkin's delivery is pitch perfect in that scene we haven't mentioned the the diner though uh by the airfield um it's got a it's got a cute uh, bulldog facade and uh, Millie who hits somebody with a pan because again it's a reasons. it's a uh, what Lauren said is that's one of the allowed items that you can as that a woman can hit people with uh, you got there's a pan or a vase and Jennifer Connelly's got the vase thing down so and a statue she hits a guy with a and statue, a statue right too. and so Millie gets the, uh, the the frying pan for that that's Margot Martindale who's been in a million things and is great and she's got this little part in the Rocketeer it was fun to see her there well and mm-hmm. watching it watching it in retrospect knowing her who she is now and knowing that she's uh, 
pretty damn good actress. Mm. If you watch Justified, she is yeah, chilling she's in that. In that. Yep. The and, Americans. Um, and the Americans. William Sanderson is one of the flyboys who, of course, I didn't know when I first watched this, but watched it and having just watched Deadwood in the past year was like, it's the mayor from Deadwood. No, it's Larry, it's Larry from, from Newhart. Newhart. And he's also, also in uh, Blade Runner. Yeah. I, I was going to say, you know, seeing Margot Martindale now and watching this and going, oh, my God, all she's doing is squealing and gasping and, and she can do so much more. Yeah. Also, uh, character actor bit for you, Casey, Eddie Jones as Malcolm. Who is yeah. of course also in sneakers? He's in, what? Who did he play in sneakers? He's one of he's one of Ben Kingsley's thugs. He's the real bad, the the jerky thug, the big uh, who knocks huh. Robert Redford out several times in the trunk. He is. Oh yeah, he is. Yeah, huh. He also played the dad on Lois and Clark. He was yep. he was Clark's dad. That's where I knew him. I was like, look, it's Jonathan Kent. <laughs> There he is. <laughs> oh, no way. I did not even yeah, put that together. I didn't even now mention him, Eddie myself. Jones. He's, he was on the parade of character actors. He was. Yep. I didn't yep. mention him, but I should have, because he's dad from yeah. Lois and Clark. Absolutely. Yep. It was such a good way that he sabotaged uh, their their date by revealing what had actually happened to the GB plane. Uh, <laughs> he, he could not read the room. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, he's a drunk, but you also get the idea that he's maybe like... Not not all, all there. there. Yeah. yeah, like there's because he talks about the uh, getting shot down by the Red Baron, and I love that he's like telling Patsy, the girl, like, did you ever tell you the story about getting shot down by the Red Baron? And she starts nodding, and then Margot Martindale's like shaking her head behind <laughs> him, and then she changes to shaking her head, and yeah, it's uh, I enjoy. And he, then he shoots, the, he throws the uh, the wheel of the plane in the soup. It's a soup callback. Yeah. Unfortunately, it's not very hygienic to, to lick that and then hand it to a child. <laughs> it, it was the 30s, Joe. Yeah. It was building her immunity. Come on. You know, what, speaking of uh, one thing that uh, that also struck me uh, when watching this this week is Cliff is really a terrible boyfriend, like a oh, yeah. colossally <laughs> yeah, bad boyfriend. He he's a dr- I wrote down <laughs> that he's just he's a drip. He is such a drip. Yeah. yeah I, you know, he he said to Jetty, you know, um, Oh, th- this time you have lines or something like that, or um, and and he was like a real jerk about how he didn't want to see her movies, which you know of course is to some degree a trope. But I, I don't know. It was just it was stunning to me that he is a real turd, which I guess was preparing him for that movie with uh, Jennifer uh, Lopez many 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 years later when he was colossally evil. Uh, what was the name of that movie? I can't remember that Bill Campbell was in. It doesn't matter. But anyway, um, it was striking to me that, that, you know, Jenny is so nice and that he is such a turd to her. It's really unfortunate. All right. Uh, before we go, I thought I would go around and ask everybody for the final impressions of The Rocketeer. Any other closing statements that need to be made could be made now. David, what about you? I, I love it. I love it. I mean, I it's it's one of the things that I used as an inspiration in radio theater. I just, you know, increased the number of women involved oh. in it. But, you know, uh, it's it is a delightful story. And it's and, and it inspired several comics, which I enjoy reading now and happens to also include the Dave Stevens comics, which I do not read. Um, it's it's just nice. It's it's a pitch perfect recreation of that era and that style. It's not Raiders. But if I'm not watching Raiders. I can do this. You know, this movie is is a movie, as I've mentioned a couple times, that I've grown up with. And, you know, I first saw it probably not long after it came out when I was when I was a little boy. And and I and I've watched it probably a couple times a year ever since. And I just I love this movie. And and it's hard to put my finger on specifically why I love it so much. But it, to, to put in perspective how much I love this movie, the first time I went to Los Angeles, um, which was probably 2010, 
one of the things I ensured that I did when I was there was go to Griffith Observatory, which, by the way, is freaking cool. It's Mm -hmm. beautiful and such a cool place to visit. But I wanted to go there specifically so I could stand where ostensibly, (laughs) you know, this this big Zeppelin uh, attack or whatever happened. And, And oh, my God, I'm so glad I did. This movie is also weird for me because... As someone who is probably not too far away from uncultured swine, this was my first real. Uh, <laughs> this was my first real exposure to Timothy Dalton. Like I'd never seen a Timothy Dalton Bond until well after I'd seen this movie. I, this is my first exposure to uh, to Alan Arkin, to Jennifer Connelly. I mean, Bill Campbell is is I think a much less prominent star, but him as well. Uh, you know, so many people I associate them with this movie before any other, and. and the thing I love about the Rocketeer, and the only way I can describe how I what what I like so much about it is that, in many ways, it fe- it makes me feel the same way that being at Disney World does. In that, it's like this this unadulterated like childlike joy that that. I, I only feel like maybe at, at, at the holiday time or when I'm at Disney World or when I'm watching a movie like this that not only did I love as a kid, but I continue to love as an adult. And yeah, there's foibles with it. We've talked about plenty of them. But by and large, it's just a fun, happy movie. And I in in this era when, you know, I, I'll tell you that I love you know TV series like Breaking Bad, which is not a happy TV series. <laughs> <laughs> having something like this that's that's in many ways just pure saccharine, it just makes me so happy. And and the moment I hear that opening line, that, that opening music like we were talking about earlier, it's just I'm instantly transported to my happy place. And and I just love this movie so much for that. It's funny how movie locations can can be a thing that guides you because like when I when I yeah. uh, was in New York yeah. uh, a few years ago, I went to the steps of the New York Public Library like literally to look at the lions and all that because <laughs> of Ghostbusters because of Ghostbusters. It was mm-hmm. that was the reason yep. that I stood on the steps of the yep. New York Public Library is because of Ghostbusters. So I I I, I hear you, Joe. What do you, what are your feelings about the Rocketeer having rewatched it? To extend something that uh, that Casey had said. Uh, it actually kind of reminds me of uh, Disneyland. They have this thing, uh, California Adventure, the the lesser interesting place you could go, uh, and it has a uh, an area called Carthay Circle, uh, which is just sort of this weird mm. Art Deco throwback thing. And you just walk through there, and it's like uh, streetcars and all this other stuff. And it's just like this is very strange, but somehow comforting. Um, and uh, I, I I enjoy that aspect of this, the the sort of Americana mythos of of this film. It's, it's it's fun. I mean, it's not real, and I won't don't want to live there. But uh, it's 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 a uh, a fun romp to to experience, and uh, just in terms of Los Angeles locations that I appreciate much more now than I did back then. Um, I, I I do also have to echo that uh, Griffith Observatory is pretty neat, um, and uh, I like. Uh, uh, one thing I didn't realize uh, was that uh, there's the drive up to Griffith Observatory. Is very similar to the Rebel Without a Cause drive up, which apparently has also been reproduced inside of La La Land. And I was just like, "Wow, there's a lot well, of people yeah. driving up to this building." <laughs> um, but uh, I, I, I enjoy, I enjoy it, uh, and uh, I, I think that uh, it would be fun to see more things that are a little uh, lighter uh, be made mm. along these lines, where it's not necessarily like completely yeah. childish, but uh, it, it's it's uh, sort of a fun an enjoyable experience. Yeah. And I think there is something to be said, like you said, Joe, it's the, it's the mythos of this, uh, this period in American history. And was it really like this? 
uh, probably not, <laughs> but um, but it is. We know this feeling of Americana, right? Like almost, it's like a Norman Rockwell painting or whatever. It is that kind of feel, and that's what this movie, that's what this movie takes to heart. Also, Griffith's uh, Griffith Observatory is great. Watch for the falling zeppelins. That's all I'll say. Watch out for the zeppelins. <laughs> oh, that's that's just good advice. Every one thing you got to watch out for, Dan. Bring it home. Well, unsurprisingly, one of my favorite movies, uh, possibly in my top 10. Uh, I've had the uh, Rocketeer in my bio, my Twitter bio, I think, pretty much since I've been uh-huh. on, on Twitter. <laughs> um, and so I, I, I love this movie unabashedly. It's funny. I was racking my brains trying to remember the first time I saw it. And I honestly cannot remember if I saw it in the theater or not. It was, you know, just for some reason it is lost in the midst of time. But I've seen it so many times since then. Uh, that it's all kind of blurred together. Uh, and, and I agree with what everybody said about this being lighthearted and being a romp. It taps into a few things that I think are just fundamental in a lot of people. One is the basic idea of flight, right? Like, who doesn't want to find a jetpack? Like, the idea of the freeing, you know, freeing yourself from flight. In the same way that we think of Superman or any sort of superhero, I think having that power is something that appeals to a lot of people. And, it, it, you know, being an average Joe for whatever reason, that or not, uh, hey. not, not that, that Joe. <laughs> you're above average show. You know, find you stumbling across something extraordinary is, I think, uh, you know, a basic story premise that we can all kind of get behind. I think also in the in the ways of that mythos, this is a black and white movie. There's not a lot of shades of gray. The bad guys are bad. The good guys are good. Even if the good guy is somewhat of adult at times about being, a, you know, a crappy boyfriend, <laughs> there's not a lot of moral gray area, right? Like, yeah. you know, it's pretty clear cut. And that's that's one of the reasons Nazis tend to make good cartoon villains is because up until recently they seemed like oh yeah they're you know who can be offended by nazis um so i i think that there's a lot to love about this movie hell my mom loves this movie and she is not a huge like superhero or pulp comic fan but she i i've watched this with her on multiple occasions uh and i know that she really likes it and so for me you know it takes a lot of boxes um it sort of fits in the superhero genre but without being um, overly superhero-y. It's got the 1940s aesthetic to it. It's got that mythos of a simpler time. Um, and, and all of that sort of combines the, with the fantastic score, um, the special effects, the cinematography, all of that wraps together in a package that I think is just incredibly appealing. And I do wish there were more movies made like this that you know, it's not to say that there isn't a place for movies that challenge you and make you think, uh, but in, sometimes you want to sort of sit back, relax, and catch something that is that is simple and, and t- like, tugs at that part of you that longs for a, a more black and white era where the heroes are larger than life and, and good and the bad guys are easily defined and easily combatable. Well, and that, I, mean, I got into a conversation on Twitter about that today, that there just aren't enough movies now where the hero is heroic simply because it's the right thing to do right they have to have a complicated backstory or it has to be they have to be uh somewhat morally gray and they do heroic things because it's part of their job you know where where are our role models where where are those uh, characters we can look up to and and aspire to be like and if we bring all the heroes down to our level who are we aspiring towards? That's one reason I give a plug to Captain America and Joe Johnson's work on that, right? That is that is kind of what they're going for with all of those movies is he is supposed to be morally unimpeachable. And you can have a discussion about what that means and whether or not that's true. But I think for the right. most part, especially in the first couple of movies, uh, he comes out pretty much being the closest thing we have to the 
that simple square jawed hero who just is, does what's right because it is what's right. The, that right. first Captain America movie, and and I would say this even if I didn't know that Joe Johnston directed it and The Rocketeer, but like that is one of the closest movies I can find to The Rocketeer in it's terms a of spiritual sequel, right? It like really yep, is right, yep. and and, uh, and for a period piece, and it feels like I told somebody who was skeptical about it. I said it's like a propaganda. It's like a World War II propaganda film in a lot of ways, and yeah. and, and it's just enjoyable, yeah. like. It is. It is. It is not shying away from what kind of a story it's telling about Steve Rogers, be, you know, being the scrawny kid who becomes the hero and and punches Nazis, and you know it, that that's exactly what it is, and it's great, and it and it does have uh, Peggy Carter, a much more active participant in mm, uh, in that yeah. movie than than Jennifer Connelly is allowed to be as Jenny in this one. It, it's a fine tuned, course corrected re- remake. Yeah. This has been great. It's, it was fun to revisit this film. This is a, this film is a lot of fun, and I'm glad that we could talk about it too. So I would like to thank my guests. Before we go, David Lore, thank you. Thank you. I'm I'm off to chew some gum and, and look at some plans. And I'm all out of plans. Uh, D- <laughs> Joe Rosenstiel, thank you for being here. <laughs> thank you for having me, Dan Morin. Thank you. Son of a bitch will fly. <laughs> and. <laughs> Casey List, uh, thanks for being on again. Uh, I guess when we do our sneakers episode, you'll be back, right? Oh, I, it would be my pleasure, and thank you so much for having me. All right, and uh, that's it for this edition of The Incomparable. We'll be back next week with more, but until then, this is Jason Snell signing off. Bye, everybody. Bye.